Greetings, listeners in listener land. Welcome to St. Louis in Tune with Arnold Stricker and Mark Langston, where we size up current and historic events involving people, places, and things in areas such as the arts, crime, education, employment, faith, finance, food, government, health, history, housing, humor, justice, and sports. We originate from and connect the Gateway City to what is going on regionally, nationally, and internationally. If any of you like photography, old-time photography, black and white, that predates digital photography. It predates Kodachrome, color photography. David Henschel is the author of The Art of Old-Time Black and White Photography, 200 black and white photographs, and he's going to be speaking at the Jewish Book Festival Wednesday, November 16th at 7 p.m. David, welcome to St. Louis in Tune. Thank you. Thank you. So when did you start to get this interest in photography? When I was about 10 years old, it was right after the after World War II, my uncle came home from the war with a beautiful camera. It's called a Zeiss Icon. It was a folding camera that had these bellows that opened and closed. And I was fascinated watching him doing this. And he was an amateur photographer beside being a doctor. And he let me... I watched him taking pictures, and then we went in the dark room where I was totally mesmerized by what you could do in the dark and what you do in this red light and seeing all this stuff. And that's what that was the genesis of my idea of taking pictures. It didn't generate at that time because I was only 10 years old. All I knew was uh, something fascinating. So how did that grow? How did that well, nurture? It went, and we took more pictures then my uncle gave me that camera oh wow and it was like a second coming i couldn't believe what i had so i started taking pictures my brother has had a dark room in his in our basement and we developed 120 film that's a little bit larger format that's what fit in that camera and we ended up taking pictures and i just got fascinated the problem is I got tired of it, and I, being what I was, a sort of a reprobate teen, young te- preteen, I ended up selling it, thinking I was going to get a lot of money for it. And that ended my early career as a amateur photographer. Why did you get tired of it early? I didn't. Oh, I you just didn't. didn't. I just, it just ended. I had, at that age, a lot of things happened, and I w- happened to have been a not a particularly real good person. I did a lot of things in my youth that at that time a lot of kids our age did that. It didn't involve drinking or it didn't involve drugs. But it, it was didn't just involve an, photography. N- no, and that was the end of it. So I ended up not doing it at all. And I, of course, went to high school and I went to college. And then after college is when it was reignited again. What was the spark? I think that you'll see that in my notes. The spark came really seeing film noir, black and white, and seeing shadows and seeing the movement of of the black and white image and the, the whole concept of how a director, a movie director, would see things better in black and white. Color is too, it's just blasé. Black and white, the right use of black and white is a very dramatic. 
and it can incite huge emotions it does. within people. It does. And, well, is it because the color palette's gone? I didn't. I never. Once I really got involved in this, I actually saw black and white. I didn't see color. I hmm. saw black and white. Interesting. And as I began as a photographer taking pictures, I continued that way, and I never took black, color images. I never did. The only black and white commercial photography was always black and white. So that's I did it for newspapers and for magazines and general photojournalism, and it was always black and white. As a matter of fact, color I refused to do. Interesting. So. I just saw no value in it. It does portray a, and I should say, it does evoke different kinds of emotions than color does. Tremendous emotions. Tremendous. So when you're looking at something and you're visualizing, you're seeing black and white, how do you know when to snap the shutter? I don't. Okay. I look at, I, I'm ta- looking back now many years since I retired Stopped taking pictures as an artist in 2004. I retired in 2000, so that's 22 years ago. But at that time, I saw things that bothered me most were things that were askew, where the lines weren't correct, where the horizontal and vertical things didn't match. And it disturbed me enough that I just, I would, on my adventures into taking pictures, where it meant a great deal to me personally, I couldn't take a picture unless it had a certain a certain composition. And the composition always required regularity, and regularity meant lines, it meant shadows going a certain way. And that's if I didn't see it, it disturbed me, I just didn't take the picture. I didn't, I'd prefer not to have done it. The other idea was that I looked back and studied the early photographers, the ones that considered it as art, not commercial photographers that sold their afterward as art, but real artists who struggled and had pain making a living from something that they wanted to do. And these are people that, that Paul, uh, I think it's Paul Steiglitz, is it Steiglitz? Steiglitz. Mm-hmm. Imogene Cunningham. There was five or six people in the 20s who developed this process, the biggest thing for me is I would never, ever take a picture unless I could use the entire image and print it exactly as that is. That's the way they are in this book. Hmm. I never cropped an image in my life, never. Interesting. It always, and you, when I process my own pictures, I process them to make sure that the viewer saw that I took in the entire thing as I saw it through the camera lens and not as I would portray it cropping the image to make it look like art. It's not art unless you see the real thing like I've got in this book, the 200 pictures. None of them are cropped, nothing. So they're seeing what you saw. Yeah, and there's no, I've never altered these images at all. So not like Ansel Adams did? No, he did it properly. Okay. And he did, the problem with Ansel Adams is at the time he was taking pictures, he didn't consider himself an artist. He considered himself a commercial photographer. Okay. And that the pictures that he took, he had the ability, God, a, a tremendous ability at seeing black and white and seeing shadows. 
And in the dark room, he could manipulate the way the light comes through from the through the film onto the pro, on the photographic paper. He could make it so that it could change it by shadowing with his hands or with a there's a little thing he used like a filter. Or yes, something? no, it's actually a little circles, and if you do it just right, you can black out certain. Uh, light images and make them darker or make them lighter depending upon how much you want. That's Part of that is the art of photography. I did it occasionally, but most of the pictures in here are not altered at all. So Ansel Adams was able to, he was one of the few people that could really do that. You see some of his pictures from Yosemite right? that are just absolutely gorgeous. They are. So beautiful. The problem with it, personally, the way I feel, is... I only took one picture, printed one picture. I retired the negative and never will print it again. The only time they're printed is I have glossies of each of my catalog so that I can reproduce it properly as opposed to somebody who takes a picture and it's sold the first time and it becomes popular and they continue to sell it and sell it. Ansel Adams' pictures in the original printing farm are over $5,000 each. And that's printed by other people. Right. So in my case, I only did one. And if I didn't sell it, I didn't sell it. And if I sold it. And they get the person who bought the few that the few people that bought the pictures that I took got the negative with it being neg- and ne- it was I put a line through it. Okay. Wow. So it couldn't be done. Wow. That's, but that's the way I felt. But it was easy for me to do it because I was earning a living being a photographer at the same time as I was being an artist. At other, In other words, I would separate my time. I would never use my commercial photography suddenly making it art because it looked pretty. I had to always divorce myself from that and do that separately. Wherever I was, whenever I took pictures, I would take my pictures, but then... If I felt good and I felt like the surroundings were something that would be aesthetic, I would go out and spend hours just looking at pictures, thinking about pictures. And if one looked the way I wanted it, I may take it and I may not. It depends. When you look through a camera lens, things differently than if you see the entirety of what's around you. With the, you can see 180 degrees with your eyes. Within that is a are specific instances that flash before your eyes that you say, my goodness, look at that. Isn't that beautiful? If I have the camera there at the right time and the shading and the, uh, everything is at proper, I would take it. Most of the pictures that I took in that way, I've continued. They, I still have them. In other words, I've, I have these 200 pictures in this book, but I'm planning another 200 which is going to take a while. Again, this took a decade to put this together. Holy so, smokes. So if you see the pictures, I mean, it, you're not seeing this on the radio, but I just open it up, you can see. So this is the way you can see for your listeners. This I'm showing him pictures of these. There's none of these pictures have, every one of these are lines around them. And they they it, are framed off. That's what I saw. That's what you saw. I didn't say, I think I'll add a little or I'll take a little away because his face is interesting. Or maybe I don't like this background, so I'll take that out. And uh, I could keep on. There are 200 of these. That's very so interesting. So it's the same thing. 
I saw this, I saw an image, I still rec recollect the images, I can still remember them, this is, some of these are 40 or 50 years ago, wow. but I still remember the person, I remember the happiness in their face in this particular one. These are in the Sudan. This is in Germany. This is a, a cemetery in, in, forgot what it was, Frankfurt, outside of Frankfurt. And I, it, you, I can't describe over the microphone, but the way I saw this image was straight lines, straight lines, dark shadows, white. Each In each one of these, that's how I see it. That's what it was. Now, when you look through the lens... And you may see us, or you may see a scene like that one in Frankfurt, and you go, "It's not. I, I see the lines, but the color's not right." And maybe a different time of day when you went back, it no, would be right. Or has to be at that time. Has to be at that time. Okay. Yeah, I'm not going to say to myself, I didn't say to myself, "Boy, that's pretty," but I'm going to come back in another hour. It'll look a lot nicer. Okay. That's not right. Okay. That's not the way I saw it. I okay. saw it that way, and that's the way I saw it. Okay. And if I didn't like it, I wouldn't have taken the picture. That's very honest. So you were working for the St. Louis Jewish Light newspaper. Yes. And then you were also taking photographs on... Well, I had other assignments and other customers, okay. and they included a lot of things that went on in my throughout my life that were... Some were not so good. Sometimes I was in a war. Sometimes I was in, a, I was in the middle of the... In Argentina, I was assigned to take pictures during their the uh, dirty war wow and it's what you do i just never talk about it but i was there i took pictures i was in the soviet union when they were had the a lot of troubles with anti-semitism and with with they were called new americans uh, russians uh, russian jews that were able to get exit visas and get out so i was there i took pictures i went there three or four times so on behalf of the St. Louis Jewish Line? No. Okay. So one, they were. The stories that I came back with that I wrote were part of the Jewish Light. The editor-in-chief at that time was Bob Cohen, and that was one of the things. He knew what I was going to be doing, and that was. he said, yes, I'd love to have that if you can do it. So that's part of <laughs> I don't know what else I can tell you. You said you studied a lot of the, what I'm going to call the masters, of photography. Yes, I did. And I know back in the Civil War time, famous photographers, Matthew Brady being one, did you look at their work too? And what did you glean from their work that was similar to Stieglitz? They were commercial photographers. Okay. They earned their living taking pictures. They never, ever, in any written words or anything that's ever been said, especially with Matthew Brady, never considered their work as art. However, today their pictures could sell for a million dollars. An original picture by Matthew Brady of President Lincoln sitting is a very famous picture. That could sell for half a million dollars. The when original. Did that, when did that link from being a photographer to an artist in photographer's mind, when does that happen? Or when did that happen for the industry? You have to have it inside of you. And I didn't, I, the genesis, beside being the pictures when I was a youngster, was seeing the films that were done. What's the one where they had, he was the, it was a portrayal of the guy who was Hearst. And it, it, Citizen Kane. Citizen Kane. Citizen Kane to me is 
unbelievable because of the black and white use, the use of black and white, and the way the camera was done. Now, I don't think they considered that art. I think that's cinematography. Right. Somebody today would say, oh, that's art. I'll pay for so and You don't always do, you know, you're not always an artist to make a living. You're not always a writer to make a living. Sometimes you, you write because you love to do it. And the challenges that you have, I write, I, now I'm writing books, but I'm writing them because I don't really expect to sp- sell anything. You've written, what, eight books now? This well, this is this was the sixth. Then there was a the seventh, that was my sixth. Is that confusing? That was a novel. Okay. So I've so you're written, a novel writer also. I write, but I don't know if I'm considered somebody like Philip Roth. I'm not a novelist. You haven't gotten a New York Times bestseller yet. I am not even close. <laughs> I'd be lucky if I sell five. <laughs> the family bought them. Yeah, that's it. You got it. Why did you pick these 200 black and white photographic images? I don't know. I went through my catalog. I have, <clears throat> as I said, I have 8 by 10 glossy pictures because I had to have those to reproduce them. You can't reproduce something you don't have. And as I went through all of my catalogs, I kept going through it and saying, I like that one. But then... It, it, I would say I didn't like it, and I got confused, and I said, I don't know what I would like. And the way the method of doing this nowadays is not the normal method. You take the picture, and you put it onto a computer, and you can apply that to a, a digital, as a digital image. That digital image comes through on this when it's printed by a printing company right. into a viable print. So I don't know what happened. I just, I liked them, and I knew that I had an awful lot of pictures over 35 years of taking pictures that I liked so much because that's why I took them. But to put them in a, in, and put yourself in front of the public, whether that sells anything or a million copies, has there, there has to be a lot more to it than just simply saying, I'm going to make this and sell them. You have, a, you have something that you need to, a quality that you need to have in order to do that. You can't just, I'm going to take them back with it. I'll just do it. I'm sure they'll be fine like this. I had to think about each of these pictures. Because this is really, these are all parts of who you are. I don't know it. I didn't know I was. It was part of my... No, but I, you've, you saw this, and this is a part of who you are that you're giving out to the world. Well, like the, the bottom line is I can recall of these 200 pictures, as I look at them, I have recollections of exactly when I took them. You have a great memory then. No, I think that anybody who takes pictures can remember. I can remember most of the pictures I see. It's really funny. I go out, to, my wife and I go out to dinner and I'll say, we were here. I remember we sat at that table. That was 20 years ago with someone, and I, I say to her, this is the craziest thing I've ever heard. How do I remember that? I remember if I had chicken piccata or I had this or that, and I'm sitting, and I remember that kind of stuff. I <laughs> so, think the visual part of our brain is probably different than other parts of our just remembering, like music does to you. You hear things. Uh, things is probably a different part of the brain that is easily recalled. Did you ever think about how a composer 
like Beethoven or Brahms or Bach can write and th- write a symphony and have that in their mind and be able to, in most cases, most of them, I think, I think Mozart could play all of the instruments that he composed. How in the world could somebody do that? Of course, you can't do it. You won't find that today. No. All you hear a type of music that's not music. Yet, 30 years from now, that music will be the standard of what they'll say, ah, that music, I certainly remember it. That's correct. But we can listen to music from 30 years ago and hear every word, Every like Dean Martin sings, you can hear every word he says. You can Frank Sinatra, you hear them. You hear, I'm thinking, the craziest thing I thought about, I'm listening to music and I have Apple play, and I walk a lot. And when I walk, I play Apple, Apple play. And I tried to think of what I could really think of that was really odd. So I went to a type of music that nobody would ever think about. It's called, it's a Mexican music. And it's a farm-type music, ranchero music. Okay. It's the most fantastic thing I've ever heard. There's a guy, Fernando, I forgot what his last name. He is unbelievable. He's like the Frank Sinatra of Mexico. Oh, wow. Yeah, I'll bet 99% of the people in the country never heard of him. But the idea is that I can see visual and enjoy it. I can also listen to my senses. A lot of that has to do with how I take pictures. How I did. I enjoyed listening to music a lot, and music seemed to have stimulated, especially classical music, stimulated the way I guess I, it made me feel like I see something that they, if they went through that pain, then I should be able to do the same thing. And as I listened to it, especially really fine music, I just, it just hit me a certain way. It grabs you emotionally. And it's crazy, but that's no, I get that. I get how that. I feel. Do you sense? I shouldn't use the word sense because I want to ask you a question about senses. Do you believe that your senses are really intense? In other words, you mentioned visual. You mentioned auditory. Your smell, sense of smell, no. does that do something for you? No. Or taste when you, food, does that really— Not in, not in respect it as I took pictures. Okay. It was totally visual. Okay. It had nothing to do with your appetite or your stomach. It has, okay. or it had to, our our sound. Other than the classical music, my it was just seeing something, and I would know if it had enough for what I wanted or it didn't have enough for what I wanted. And it, I mean, there must. I think it, I estimated. Somebody asked me. I took taken over a million pictures. I was going to ask you. I was going to stop at a couple hundred thousand, but a no, million. it's a million pictures. Wow. I have, wow. I have most of my negative. There was a flood in our basement, and I lost some, but oh. not these were always protected. But there were an awful lot of pictures that had a, that I did for people, and for companies, and so the total is close to that. Can you talk about some of the companies that you used to work for? They're no longer in business. That's okay. So we so it'd be great to talk about them then. One of the finest was a company called Interiors Unlimited. It was owned by uh, Herb Palins, and I forgot his other name. There's a very good friend of mine, fraternity brother, at the University of Missouri. And they were a furniture distributor, but they needed pictures of various offices, like law offices or doctor's offices, where they put in installations. 
So I was an installation photographer. Okay. Of that particular company, my greatest recollection was getting up at four and o'clock, four o'clock in the morning one one morning, and we took a private jet to see where the company that makes Eames chairs. Okay. And I was uh, that was an artistic thought, the way the Eames chair was made, right. and to see it in production, and to, then they have a thing of all of the like the uh, like cars they have the back. They have the original Eames chairs there, and I couldn't believe what I wow. was seeing. But that wasn't why I was there. I was there to take pictures for they needed them for whatever their publicity was. So that's one company. Of course, I did a lot of their pictures of their personalities. I right. had a, a couple of really wild people. There was a young, an older black woman, and I forgot her name, but she was one of the funniest people I've ever seen. Then there was a guy, Jack Carney, Right. Jack Harney, on the off, when he doesn't have that microphone in front of him, he may be the funniest guy I've ever met in my life. He was a comedian. He was really <laughs> funny. He used to sit in this. He had a Camwax had a studio. His studio was this huge semicircular thing with him in the middle, and God knows what he's got those other things for. But there are chairs all around, and he'd get oh, it's Miss Blue. That was her name. Okay, Miss Blue. And he were big buddies. And he would call her in, and she was just, I think she was a cleaning lady for KMOX. Wow. But she t- he could pick up something, and he was really, it was really a funny thing. I had a guy, there was another one I remember. I worked for him, Joe Mamadison. We're getting away from what this subject is, but it's really funny. It's all about photography. We took pictures. I was taking pictures, and he called me, and he said, I want you down for the Vale Prophet Ball parade and i said what do you want me to do he says i want you to come with me we're gonna we're going to do something we've never done before we're going to hire our own bus and we are going to be in the veil prophet parade even though we're not official people <laughs> so my wife and i get down there and we got a bus and we we it reminds me of that movie where they i forgot what it is but where they suddenly get themselves into something into a situation. We sat there on 12th Street, right where the police department is, and we waited, we waited for the Veil Prophet Ball and all their people to come by and all their waving. So we hopped on the bus. I'm taking pictures of all this. And we hopped on the bus, and my wife and I were sitting there. She said to me, she's going like this, waving. I can't. And she says, this is the first time I've ever been in a Veil Prophet parade. <laughs> so we get around, and we're going around, and we're at the end of the parade. We're at the tail end. And we are having the best time. This is the funniest thing we've ever had. And we get to about, what's it, 14th Street. We went the circuitous route. And the parade officials stopped the bus. And I, we stopped. And everybody looks around. And he said, we're in the parade. He says, no, you can't get off. We all had to get off. The bus had to sit there. And... They wouldn't allow us to go anywhere, so we had to walk back to our cars, and that was the end of the Vale Prophet Parade. But I'm just saying it's a humorous event. Did you ever take photographs of Harry Carey or Jack Buck? No, no. No, Jack, Jack Buck, I think, was before. Well, Harry Carey was certainly before 
anything I had ever done. But Jack Buck was an announcer, but I never got involved with him. So your photographs here that are in the book, are they mainly like landscapes? Are they... Whenever... Here, I'll just open it. You can't see it. He was talking to you folks on the radio there. Yes. So this is in Mexico. I was walking around. I I was doing something, taking pictures for somebody. And I saw this picture... And I was in a cabin, and I looked down, and I saw this, and I said, boy, look at those lines. And I see this, the deep colors, and then I saw the white, and I saw these lines. There was another one, too. That was plate 107, folks, he's talking about, so you can, when you buy the book, you can tell. Yeah. Oh, we'll get back to, this is a, in Mendoza, Argentina, I was there because I was trying to find, there was a... Mendoza, Argentina is a wine country for Argentina, but it's also was the, it was the place where the government forces of Argentina, they were a violent group, a Marxist group, and I had gone there to, and I did make contact with them, and I went on a, a ride. This was one of the pictures that I had seen of a, this is a sand he would take sand and put it into a bottle and make these beautiful designs out of Those it. Those are gorgeous. But I saw all of this. I saw this whites and I saw the darks and I saw this going down. I don't know if I have any more like that. That's somewhere else. That's Paris. Yeah, it is. Yeah. See, they're all... I just see this. And So why did I see these hanging? This is in the Jewish section of Rome. And I don't know what I saw in it, but I saw these white clothes hanging up drying and i saw these lines again and it made was the same thing that's plate 114 in rome yeah and this is in this is in bombay the people in india can scare you to death by visually seeing them but once you make contact with them and you smile that's all you need to do it doesn't matter who they are they seem to be happy to see you they're as interested in you as i was in them this was a woman selling confections and I just stopped, and I, I couldn't speak. I can't speak their language. But you, the language of vi- communications and visual communications is far greater and more strong and stronger than voice. So they could see, and I'd said, take your picture. I'm saying, and she said, yeah, come on. So that was what, one. This was a poverty in, not New Delhi, but Calcutta. in Bombay, Calcutta. And it's, I just couldn't believe that people could live like that. So this this was a here they're doing with a with a snake, they're snake charmers and these two women were sitting on a thing. I guess they I guess they are paid to make their snakes come out of these baskets. So I just said, do you mind? And they said yes, and they smiled, and the snakes came out. And you see the lines of the stairs. Every there. one of the except these are not straight, but I, there was other reasons because the mm-hmm. women are. Let's see if I can do some more of these. Oh, this was a wedding that I was taking in in New Delhi, and this was an Indian wedding. And I think there's a second picture. No, let's see. Yeah, here's the person. Here's the groom. And this is the father, I think. But this particular, these two images could not have been possible with any other camera beside a Leica. And the Leica at this time in these years had a, had a lens that it was 1.0. It could pick up low light 
when it was dark. And the idea for that was to use light without and being able to see in a dark area. That wedding was very dark. And that's the other thing. If When I took pictures, not one of these pictures ever is done with a flash. And did you use a light meter? I did when I had a chance. A lot of these I just didn't really need it. I could take a picture and know it's if I needed a flash when my job, I knew 10 feet that if I'm holding my flash and taking a picture, I knew how much light after so many pictures I could tell, just like anybody else in this in a business, they know what they're doing. So that's what it was. You've been doing it for that long that you just knew. I didn't, when I was starting out, I I knew. Somehow I was able to take start taking pictures. The problem I had was my fear of people. When I first started taking pictures, I was afraid that what I was doing was robbing them of their personality. And I didn't want to do that. I didn't. I said, do you mind if I take your picture? As I got along, I didn't have to ask them. I just did it. Mm-hmm. Some of the first pictures I did were family pictures where <clears throat> you have to, like if they're groups of family, I, I thought that would be a nice thing to be able to go into their house with my a big giant 4 by 5 view camera and take pictures. And I used the old-fashioned way with <clears throat> a black drape in back of them. And I tried to imitate that. I never could do it because usually they, it was a different type of film. But that's what was, if you ask, that was the very beginnings of my commercial photography career that was in the... I think in the 60s. I don't remember. I think it was in the late 60s that I started. So I know you retired. Yes. But do you still? Uh, after, <clears throat> it's been 19, 2004 and 2005, I sold all my equipment. Okay. And I never had a camera again. <clears throat> I have a phone. Right. That's easy. That's another whole nother story. <clears throat> Today, there's nothing wrong with it, but you can take a picture with a, camera with a cell phone you can end up with gorgeous pictures for doing nothing i just took one of you the problem with that is it's in color that's correct but today you can within a matter of five seconds you can make it black black. so the idea of photography is there's photography the old time photography and then there's the new type digital age just as i was quitting taking pictures the digital cameras started and luckily i didn't keep up with it first of all i don't think i would have done it but secondly the cost for commercial digital equipment at that time was so high that um you couldn't uh, most people couldn't afford it companies bought these digital cameras there were hasselblad cameras that were at least maybe twenty twenty five thousand dollars wow that those are the ones that took the early visual images digitally and using a format of two and a quarter square inches of film of image not film they used image so that you could put see that <clears throat> on the back of the camera and this big heavy camera you could see the back and you could do it and if you needed to take more of the same thing you could do it if you needed to take this you press a little button and it moves it around for you they can call it photography but it's not the old type i would think that old type old time photographers would have they go nuts 
looking at this kind of stuff and saying, well, that's not picture. That's not taking pictures. Yeah. I have no right to say if that's art. If somebody considers a digital camera or an iPhone and they can take a picture as art, the art's in the holding of the person who buys the pictures. That's You've got true. pictures up here. Right. They're beautiful. That's art to that person, yet <clears throat> to somebody else, those heads are cut off. This is this and that. We have no right to say that. The person's art is their art. If they wanted, if they feel that way, that's the way they sh people should honor what they the way they feel. It's very important. It's, it's true. wherever you are, even today, wherever you are, somebody's feelings are different than yours. That doesn't mean that you automatically dislike that person because of that you accept for who they are. And you try to understand their way, and that's the way it is. You just, that's, you look at people that way. When I was a photographer, I looked at people that way, that they may be different, but they have, I'm going back and recollecting these ideas. During the time that I was in Argentina, there was a dictator named Videla, Jorge Videla. He killed people. I took his picture in a, at a at some kind of a conference. I, yeah, I was in a that was who I was taking pictures for, and he was a keynote speaker. <clears throat> at the same time, outside were people. He would that were military were dis, dissidents. He was a person who had people, secret police, who would round those people up because they didn't they weren't like he was. Right. Uh, part of the. There was a group, I can't remember, the AAA. They were anti-government, but they, unfortunately they were also communists. My job at this particular time was to find those people, try to interview them, which I did, and spend a day with them, which I did. And we ended up, I'm sure I can talk about it now, I couldn't talk about it then. We ended up at, on the Peruvian border. I had gone in this car with these members of the AAA. I'm sitting there frozen with fear. And they said, don't worry. They speak Spanish. And they said, don't worry. And we go up to the top of where Peru and Argentina end, or begin and end. And it's a mountain pass. And it is unbelievably beautiful. But there is a cabin. That cabin was the center for the, for the anti-government operation. Okay. Those people, had they known that, they would have been dead. But at the time I did, I just thought they were just normal people. They didn't look bad to me, but they looked bad to the government was in control because the government was controlled by the military, and the military took care of anybody who didn't just, wasn't the same as them. And I was there to try to interview a man named Jacobo Timmerman, who was the a Jewish editor of a news, Jewish newspaper in Argentina, and he was put in jail <clears throat> for his, the way he, for his writings and for his, the way he thought wasn't their way, and he wrote it, and I forgot it was a Herald Tribune, the, the Jewish something like that. So when I was able to interview him, I lived with families of disappeared children for a month. And I live in their house. I live with them. Wow. And I tried to get a better understanding of why their children were disappeared. Think about it. These are 15, 16, 17-year-old kids and college kids. 
One day they had them, they were there, and the next day they were gone forever. Wow. So they couldn't, I had to try to take pictures of all this. I have all these family pictures. I wouldn't put them in here, but it's, that was my job. That's what I did. You've been listening to David Henschel. He's talking about his career and the book, The Art of Old-Time Black-and-White Photography, 200 black-and-white photographic images. And David is going to be speaking at the Jewish Book Festival on Wednesday, November 16th at 7 p.m. He's going to be talking about his book. And David, one last question for you. You maybe meet a youngster who is interested in photojournalism or being a photographer or being an artist. What advice do you give them? I can recollect the person who was exactly like that. We were taking pictures, and she was taking pictures and trying her hardest to figure out how to be a photographer. I took her in, mentored her for about two years, and today she's a really well-known photographer. So the advice I would do, would give now that I'm retired, would be try to find a person who's earns her living taking a picture, taking pictures, and try to get a way to be, to ask if they can be part of their, to just follow them around or do be a, their acolyte. And if you can do that, you pretty well have, you have the answer. When I, one of the ways of my early way before, early part of commercial photography was trying to learn the how a commercial photographer worked, and I went to the studios called Jules Pirlo. Jules Pirlo was probably the best-known wedding photographer in the city. Took all the fancy weddings. <clears throat> and I went there. His office were in Clayton. was afraid. I froze. And his front door was right on, I forgot, there's a Catholic church, and then his, office, his building was right there. I said, if I want to be photographer I've got to do what I've got to do and I walked in and I was scared to death because this guy was larger than life this is this was the top and I a secretary I said I need to see Jules Parallel she says what's your business I said I'm trying to learn photography she says from Mr. Pirlo and I said yes she said just a minute so Jules Pirlo himself came out and I told him the way I felt and he says, I want you to, I'll help you any way I can. I couldn't believe it. That was actually the beginning of my in the 19, early 1960s. That was what really got me going, that somebody cared enough to, in that business, to be able to help me to take, to be able to, and didn't, wasn't worried that I was going to steal his business. He wanted to help me, and his assistant helped me. And that's how I got started. So if you ask me a question, how do you get started? You have to find the person who is in that business and just go to them, call them on the phone and tell them the truth that you would like to start. And that's it. If not, you have to do it on your own and just take pictures and finally try to find a commercial customer or whatever it is and go from there because there's no other way. You have to know how to, you have to know how to use cameras even if they're digital you still have to be able to compose look right. through a camera lens and be able to tell see what you know not crooked right they have to be pretty straight so that's what i would say we've had a wonderful conversation with david henschel he is the author of the art of 
old-time black-and-white photography, 200 black-and-white photographic images. And, folks, you can see him at the Jewish Book Festival Wednesday, November 16th at 7 p.m. You can get tickets. They are $25. And he's not the only one there. There's a bunch of other authors who are going to be there, and it's going to be a great event. David, thanks for taking time to talk with us. This has been really enjoyable. Pleasure. Anytime. Thank you, sir. Glad to do it. We are glad you listened to this episode of St. Louis in Tune. Please share this podcast or tell a friend. St. Louis in Tune is produced in cooperation with KWRH 92.9 FM and Motif Media Group. For St. Louis in Tune, I'm Arnold Stricker.